Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this week is number 79. And rather than cheesy jokes this week, I thought we'd do a little quiz based on the number 79. Don't worry, it's short. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we have a bumper show for this week with four guests. You know, when coronavirus first hit and countries started to shut down, the news seemed to go along with it, to the point I was wondering how I was going to come up with material. Well, seeing as food is essential and dairy is a big part of that, there's been plenty of articles to write and news to report on, and we'll have the news for you from the last week a little later. Before the news, and before me rambling on, let's run through who this week's guests are. On this week's podcast, we chat with Morton Boson, Global Product Line Manager, Fresh Dairy at DuPont Nutrition and Biosciences, which recently launched its Yomix Prime Cultures globally. Rudy Raskin, Vice President, Sales, DW Reusables, about creating recyclable crates for Bergland milk. Mary Quick, Managing Director of Quicks, about online sales in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, and David Yanez, founder and CEO of Andonix, a company working to help other companies on safety during the crisis. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INCL FC Stone. So first, to the number 79. I appreciate that not everyone in the industry is in lockdown and trying to find things to do, but some are, and hopefully there's nothing wrong with a bit of fun. We're currently at home doing a jigsaw puzzle of a map of the county that we live in. It's a thousand pieces and most of them look the same. I'm still working on the border and the rest of the family have already long since abandoned it. I've been doing lots of quizzes online as well, most of them related to either geography, music and sports. And then all of a sudden it's midnight. That and writing some new music as well. So here's a little quiz and my sad attempt to keep you listening. The first of the questions is which of these albums came out in 79? That's 1979, of course. Was it Dire Straits' debut album called Simply Dire Straits? Supertramp's Breakfast in America? Or was it Bruce Springsteen's The River? 79 was also a good year in sports in the US for one city as its teams won the Super Bowl and the World Series. Which city? And the last one, what is the element with the atomic number 79? Is it gold, silver or copper? I was going to say bronze, but then bronze isn't an element. So I guess that rules that one out. So you're down to two. A bit of a change this week in that our IT department is doing something to the websites that I have no clue about. So there isn't a newsletter today with the podcast in it. So while it will be going live on the website on Wednesday as usual, it won't be going out in a newsletter until Thursday. And I'm sure that was as clear as mud. Okay, let's move on to another week of lockdown. It's still sunny here, and likely will be until the lockdown is over. At least, it makes it a bit easier to do interviews as many people are inside. Although, of course, there are technological challenges, as well as interrupting dogs, cats and children. But there are certainly more important things in life than having a child interrupt your work. So we should take a look at the news we've had over the last seven days. And as there's been a lot of it, I'll just give you some. And then you can go to dairyreporter.com to read them all. Or a few of them. Last week, we published a special newsletter on probiotics, which included stories on DuPont, 
Beneo and Christian Hansen, Meiji has bought a stake in a Chinese dairy farm company, Coexpan is taking part in the French Recycalypso recycling project, and in the US, dairy groups have been reacting to the government's $19 billion disaster package. As part of its 2020 regulations for the dairy industry, Kenya has hit dairy imports with a 10% levy, SIG is going to be working on the new Hochwald plant, Different players in the UK dairy industry have come together to call for immediate action to help with the crisis. And also in the UK, Lancashire Farm Dairies is investing in technology and Future of Foods Wales new site is now open. Danone published its first quarter results and we have a roundup of some of the positive things dairy companies are doing to help out in these difficult times. These stories and more at DairyReporter.com. And so to this week's first guest. A week or so ago, we ran an article about the global launch of DuPont Nutrition and Biosciences Yomics Prime Cultures series for yogurt. To tell us more about the cultures is DuPont Nutrition and Biosciences Global Product Line Manager for Fresh Dairy, Morten Bosen. Could you tell me why the products were developed and also how long it's taken? Obviously, these things don't just happen overnight. Yeah, you're right. And especially when you launch new products like this that are really innovative, it takes a big effort before you can do that. So why we have been developing them, that's that's quite simple, I would say. It's, I mean, we have developed these cultures because we saw a need in the market, basically. So we have a very close dialogue with most of our customers and therefore we understand the global yogurt market pretty well. So we see the challenges that our customers are dealing with on a daily basis and this popped out as being a need in the market. I suppose that's something that if you have a good communication with your your own customers, you find out from them what they're looking for. So that communication is really important, I guess. That is really important and that is is key for us and also key for our customers the other way around, I, I think, in this kind of industry that you have that close dialogue and a close interaction between our salespeople and the customers, but also between our application people, the more technical people and the technical people on the customer side. So interactions both on the technical level and on the more, let's say, commercial level, it's extremely important. So. When you put all the dots together, you see, okay, we have this, I mean, we have this commercial need, maybe we have this technical need. What could we actually do about it from our side to to help out on this? And then, of course, you've got to do tests. when When you start testing products like this, there must be many different tests because you've got to take into account many different situations for the customers that are using it. It's got to be suitable for everything not just for one particular situation yeah that's absolutely right we have to figure out i mean what are the customer conditions what are the relevant applications uh, and so on that we want to aim at and then then we take that into account in in our development work so to make sure that we then set up similar conditions when we are testing internally and then, let's say, expand more and more as we get closer to the launch to uh, how broad we're testing in, in different conditions and applications. And in terms of these being a new product, what do they bring to the market that is new and innovative? So with these new 
cultures. I would say they, what they are, they are, first of all, very versatile cultures, meaning that they are not only delivering on, on one customer needs, they are actually delivering on, on several of the needs at the same time, several of the needs that you have for yogurt culture in this case at the same time. For example, they, they deliver on good flavor, on great texture, on mildness and creaminess, so all of these sensorial parameters. At the same time, they deliver on very low post acidification, so it's meaning that you keep the quality over, over shelf life, you keep the quality even though you might have had a cold chain that was broken for a while. You get more flexibility in your process, in your production setup because of that. So the special thing about these cultures are that they are delivering on more of these parameters at the same time with the same culture. So they are delivering a number of benefits that could be translated into a consumer benefit, but can also be translated into some operational benefits for the customer. Obviously, this is something different. How cost effective are they for yogurt producers? These cultures they have potential to deliver significant value benefits for our customers. So some of the benefits that I talked about before, and those value benefits would translate ultimately into to a better profitability for our customers. And as far as your customers are concerned, what can they then turn around to say about this new product to the consumer? Examples can be uh, to communicate about the sensorial quality, so the indulgence part. So our customers will be able, with these cultures, to make products that are simply indulgent, are simply tasting well, have a great texture, and they can communicate about that. They can communicate also about the fact that this taste and texture it will keep on till the end of shelf life, so it will have a stable and good quality throughout shelf life. We see that uh, consumers are more prone to buy products when it's communicated about great texture benefits, for example, on the label. Uh, other examples of how customers could communicate to, uh, to consumers could be to communicate about the naturalness. The naturalness of yogurt in itself is a natural and inherently good, healthy product. And with these cultures, you are able to make uh, a fully natural uh, yogurt. Another example is that customers could communicate about a desired nutritional profile, like reduced sugar, for example. These cultures with the mildness and flavor, they will be a good tool to help our customers to reduce sugar in the recipe as well. I assume they clean label, they would just be labeled as cultures? Yes, you're right. They'll just be labeled as cultures. So that's something that is positive as well. It is. So from that point of view, they are completely traditional, natural starter cultures, uh, yogurt cultures. It's just the fact that we have been able to develop a new generation of yogurt cultures that really gives some benefits on several levels to our customers. And the cultures can be used in a range of different yogurts? It applies to many, many different types of yogurts. Stirred yogurt for sure, Greek yogurt for sure, plinking yogurt for sure. And, and this is where you would see a lot of benefits from these cultures. Are companies using this in their products yet? Yes, we are having companies using these cultures uh, already, even though we have just launched. Okay, great. And what's the reaction been like to them so far? The reaction has been that these cultures are really something different. They are really delivering a performance that they have not seen before. So that has been, been quite positive. 
Next, we go to DW Reusables, which recently produced some new crates for the Austrian dairy company Berglund Milch to help with its sustainability goals. Rudy Raskin, Vice President of Sales at DW Reusables, can tell us more about sustainability, producing recyclable crates, and more about the company. We started in 1954 with the name DW Plastics, and at that time it was a family-owned company. And then... Uh, in 1995, we became part of B.E. Smith, which is probably known, especially for their paper and corrugated business, quite a huge company from UK origin. And we were a little bit, let me say, the, the, the exception in the group because we were dealing with plastics. And then uh, this year, they decided to focus 100% on corrugated and they sold us. And now we became more or less independent again. So we kept our name DW, but we changed the plastics into reusables, which is more correct for what we are doing, in fact, because all the crates which we are producing, bottle and returnable packaging and so on, it's a reusable, and this is how, how it started. We have four production plants, one in Belgium, where we have also the head office. Then we have one in Croatia, one in Poland, and one in Spain. And with those four plants together, we produce approximately 12 million bottle crates a year. 90% we are focused on bottle crates, which I know that in the UK right now, it's not so popular. But in the rest of the world, and especially Western Europe and Benelux and, and Germany and, and Poland and Czech Republic and so on, it's really a, a big business. Everybody is buying their crates and they take their crates at home and then they drink out from a returnable bottle and then return the crate back to the shop where they bought it and they still receive the deposit back or they buy a new one and they just exchange the crate. To come back to our crates, in fact, besides producing the crates, we are a company where we have our own development center, design and development center. So we have approximately seven to eight people who are doing this business. I mean, when, when a marketing guy from a brewery is visiting us and says, hey, guys, I want really something new, nice looking, then we start from scratch, and then we start with the design. From the design, we go to technical drawing, and at the end, it is discussed internally together with our mold manager, and then we uh, build the mold with the partner, and then finally, we start production. And how much business would you have in the dairy industry with milk bottles? Is it a big part of the business or small? Well, it was in the past, it was bigger because probably you remember you had in the UK also the milkman who was bringing the milk at home. This we had in the past also in Belgium. Then the business went down, but there has been always a business with glass bottles, returnable bottles, together with crates. Nowadays, if you're talking about milk, people start thinking, well, instead of using plastic bottles or tetra, why not going back to returnable glass bottles? Because at the end, everybody is talking about, yeah, we need to recycle. It is better to reuse instead of to recycle. Why creating waste and then start thinking, what are we going to do with it? Just use reusable. No. If you come to Bergland Milk in, in Austria, they did a test again with glass bottles. 
And then they found out that the end consumer was really excited about it. And then they took the decision to go back to crates and refillable glass bottles. And my opinion is that a lot of people will follow in the future. I mean, the young generation, they start thinking in a different way. And everybody is talking about sustainability. And we have a lot of organizations, like in, in this case with, with Bergkamp Milk, there was also Greenpeace involved. And I said, hey, why not, uh, why not doing this? And everybody start thinking, yeah, this should be the solution. And it will grow. It is, it's not only for milk. Now they start also thinking about yogurt because those plastic jars which we are buying for yogurt it's stuff which is not easy to recycle. So everybody is asking to recycle, but in this case, this material is almost not recyclable. Why not using a glass jar? And anyhow, glass, and most of the people, they do not know it, but if you compare, for example, a glass bottle, let me say a one-way glass beer bottle, and you compare it with a glass bottle returnable, well, the CO2 emission is seven times less than a one-way glass bottle. And even like a brewery here on Western Europe, on the continent, they prefer to have returnable bottles because the profit is also higher. You may not forget if you buy a, a one-way glass bottle, you are paying each time approximately 10 cents to throw it away afterwards. And a glass bottle, a reusable glass bottle, you can reuse it up to 35, 40 times. And this glass bottle, the price of the glass bottle is not more expensive than the one-way glass bottle. So it makes sense. With the Berglund Milch, did they come to you for a solution? Or is it an existing product that you already had? Or did you have to design something specifically for them? No. In the case of Berglund Milch, the people, they just ask, is that, do you have a crate? We have some crates, but then finally they decided to have their own design, which are most of the people doing, because at the end, in fact, they are then free to buy whatever they want, uh, because then the malt is belonging to them, the design is belonging to them. But they didn't find the right appropriate, nice-looking crate. So that's the reason why they ask us to, to look together with the malt producer to build their own design of crate. We have to design the crate, and then when the design is ready, you have to build a mold, particular for this design, and then for, to build the mold, it takes approximately four months, and then you can start producing crates. I mean, in general, we do have a lot of standard molds, which we can sell free. So if somebody says, hey, I have a bottle, and this is the size, and this is the height, and the diameter, then we look in our portfolio, and we can offer most of the time a suitable crate. But sometimes the big players, they want to have their own uh, design because so the end customer recognizes immediately that in this case, this crate and this particular bottle is belonging to this company, like in the case of Bergland Millie. So that will be a specific style and a specific color with logos built in, that kind of thing? Yeah, people there, most of the time, they have a specific color of the company and the logo. So they are passing this color to us, the logo, and then we translate this into a nice-looking crate. Once they purchase them, they're very sustainable, obviously, in terms of the, it's part of the circular economy, I guess. 
it is. Uh, in fact, it's positive and it's negative at the same time. I mean, in this case, a crate can last for 20, 30 years in the market. And even then, after this long period, we can take back the crates, we can re-grind them, and we reuse the same material to produce again a crate which can stay in the market for 20 or 30 years. If you look to our company, we started in 1964, all the crates which we produced during this period, all the material is still in the market. I'm not telling in the same design of crate, but we use regrinded material from particular crates and we transform this material into another crate for another customer, for example. So I mean, talking about sustainability, yeah, cradle to cradle. I mean, in, in our case, we were really a pioneer about reuse, but at the same time also recycle our own material. How many of the, you, you mentioned earlier before we started uh, started recording, you mentioned about people having them in their garages and basements and whatever for, uh, how, many, how many of them sort of leave the, the stream of the company and backwards and forwards, how many of them get, especially if they're an attractive crate, how many of them get uh, taken into people's homes and whatever? Well, if you take Belgium, for example, approximately every house has at least three crates. What do I mean then in this case? They have their popular built type of beer, their own brand, what they prefer. They have most of the time a water crate and often a Coca-Cola crate or a Lipton iced tea or something like that or a juice. And, and, and this, is, this is quite popular. They keep this in house, yeah, depending on how fast you drink. But if you take, for example, a pills type, uh, then they buy at least, let me say, between 6 and 12 crates a year. But it still would be more economical for a company to lose some crates here and there. The most economical way is using returnable crate. Why? If you, as an end consumer, is taking a crate at home, then you're paying a deposit. By paying this deposit, you will help the brewer with his investment because approximately 30-35% of the crates which are bought by the customer are at the site of the end consumer. And he's paying his deposit. His crate is using this for, for 20 years. So you have about uh, 120 trips that this crate is going from the brewery to the end consumer and back to the brewery. And the bottles, they use it for 34 up to, to 46 times before they need to recycle a returnable bottle. It's a reason why, if you look to Africa, for example, most of those countries, they are using returnable crates and returnable bottles. Why? Because for the brewery or for the soft drink company, it's cheaper and, yeah, of course, sustainability also, but it's cheaper to use it instead of, of one way. So it's a win-win. It's more sustainable and more economical. This is the way we are thinking. Even we have today a sustainable product. We are taking new... Affair. We have a new development, for example, where we even use post-consumer plastics inside our crates. So can you imagine that we have a reusable crate and that we use plastics which are other people throwing away, coming from one-way plastics. 
This is brand new. I mean, we are the first in the world who is using post-consumer plastic as a raw material to use in bottle crate. So you obviously don't just have the existing crates. You're still working on research and development in that area as well. And there are two ways we go. It is on the marketing side. I mean, we have to produce and to, to redesign a nice-looking crate uh, with a nice printing where we use, for example, in-mold labeling with multicolor or even um, handles where we add soft-touch material, kind of TPE material that is easy and, and nice to carry. Those are things where we are focusing on. And secondly, even we have a sustainable product, we are even thinking what can we do to make it even more sustainable. Of course, we couldn't get through an episode without talking about coronavirus, which is obviously having a devastating effect on businesses, both small and large. In the UK, Quix produces cheese. In order to survive, the company has turned to online sales and other inventive ways to get their products sold and get their message out there. So there are some potential ways companies can respond to the current situation and Quick's managing director, Mary Quick, recently sent an open letter to the British public explaining how buying online from smaller companies can make a huge difference. To tell us more about what the company makes and how it is responding to the crisis is Mary Quick. So you sent a letter to the British public about buying online and about the coronavirus crisis. I wonder if you could fill me in on the details behind the letter. Yeah, well, I just became aware that people somehow felt that, um, you know, all food producers must be doing really well because supermarket shelves are empty. And I thought, hmm, that isn't actually how it is for all parts of dairy. I mean, you know, for instance, the minute you go off Commodity Central, Dairy farmers are are struggling, you know, processors are struggling. But in particular, in my little section of dairy specialist artisan, you know, supermarkets have, have stopped deli counters. We've worked really hard to work with food service and restaurants are closed. Many of our distributors are struggling. And then looking outside, anyone who's doing anything non-standard is getting if you like, deprioritized, either delisted or deprioritized. When we're exporting, you know, I think maybe people are going towards their home products that they know, that they know they can just grab off the shelves. So my concern was that all of that delicate ecosystem, that delicate ecology that's been built up maybe over the last, in Britain, maybe 30 years, in the United States, maybe 15 or years and you know, different amounts of time in different countries that we may be losing the whole ecosystem that food producers rely on. You know, the distributors, the chefs, the cheesemongers, the people who are real champions of our products, you know, right the way through. This isn't just about us. And I just wanted to shout out and say, hey, you know, there's something going on here and maybe this is what you can do. I don't know if you want me to go on and say what it was I felt that uh, people yeah, could do. Yeah, sure. It, it's interesting as well because when you were talking about that little, the ecosystem part of things, it, at the bottom of it, of course, is the producer and at the top is the consumer. And there's this kind of, if you looked at it like a, a web of, of food, there's a lot of little bits to it that connect A to B. And it, 
A is still producing and B still needs the food. So it's kind of strange in a way because we've got all of this, as you mentioned, all of this system that's built up and yet the producers are still producing and the people still need to eat. It's interesting, isn't it? And certainly our online has gone completely crazy. I mean, I know it's not a proper comparison, but yesterday, a year ago and yesterday now, was kind of one we had one order and then we had a hundred orders so that's extraordinary so people you're right consumers are trying to pull it through but it's really I guess it's giving people that power and that sense of that delicate ecosystem that's being created you know the people who are passionate about food who are furloughed now who are you know the the chefs who've got who are you know lots of people are trying to do lots of things have products online you know do click and collect do ready meals you know I just wanted to give as it were our whole food system that sense that there's this rich part of the system that isn't just about commodity food that is at risk and that it's always been my sense that consumers are really powerful and they don't always know their power so it was a kind of urging consumers to reach out to the cheesemongers to reach out to the chefs to reach out to the people who are out there online because I think it's really important that that whole delicate you know fragile maybe web of interest the stuff that makes food interesting and is not just about food to live this is about food to enjoy food to savor you know the sort of live to eat side if you like we're in the world of scarcity now But in the world of plenty, which will come, we want all of those great things to still be there for all of us, you know, not to have just withered on the vine, you know, in the frost that there is, this is like a, an enormous frost in a vineyard, you know, and we don't want the flowers all to, to shrivel up. I think as well that the first two or three weeks, everybody went into some kind of, and it has been replicated in all of the countries that have seen this, there was the initial panic of people buying long life products and, and a lot of convenient products. But I think that people are starting to, if you ever do, settle into this new way of life, even though it's not forever. And, and I think that, are you seeing that people have started to relax a little bit and to move into, okay, we can start to shop online and look for different things? Well, I think that's really interesting, the way that there has been that move online. And at the moment, that's perhaps half our volume that we would normally sell through the other routes. You know, and for other people, I know that's been a lot less. I know there are people who are working on kind of a tenth, which is very, very tough to still, I mean, it's quite tough if your sales halve, but if your sales go to a tenth, that's really difficult. But yeah, I think people are. And what's interesting that, you know, many of the people who buy specialty food, which often is maybe older people who may not have been so up for ordering online, you know, I think those people are creating habits that now that will last. You know, when we look at the the lockdowns opening up, actually the purpose of the lockdowns opening up when they do open up is for more people to catch the the illness so that health services don't become overwhelmed over time. You know, and the, if the people who buy specialty food are perhaps preferentially older, you know, 50, 40s, 50s, 60s and older, 
you know, those people have picked up the habit and, you know, it's going to be a while before they're going to go out to events, even if we're permitted events or restaurants. You know, would you go out to a crowded restaurant in a month's time? Or, you know, are people going to go on food journeys? Are people going to travel so much? So I feel what's being created now, it's really important what's being created now, that people get to work online, people get to socialize online, people get to share food online, because these may well be habits that persist. And of course, the the other part of that is that once we come out of the other side of this, then you, you can't burn any bridges by going it alone and, and cutting out people that you will need again in the future. So there's, there's that aspect of it too, I suppose. I mean, I think the sort of ecological model is actually a really good one. You know, the richer the ecology, the more that's going on, the more life, and if you like money or product or whatever will be the equivalent, the more life that's going on, the more different models, the more we can keep that whole thing going. That gives everybody possibilities and potentials. I I believe that people will move further online and that this whole thing has really put that on speed. But what's interesting is how many different people in the chain are doing that, you know, distributors and chefs and retailers and, you know, people may want to carry on doing the click and collect. Although I believe people do yearn for the company of other people. And I think that's important. But at the weekend, we had a family party. And on Zoom, there were 12 screens, 24 people, and we were all eating food together and chatting and finding out how each other was going on. You know, is that, will that be a model? I don't know. You know, is that something people will want to see, have warm bodies in the room, but some social life may go online, especially as the tools get better. And what products are you selling online at the moment? We're a farmer and cheesemaker. We make a traditional cloth-bound cheddar, large cheddar and other hard British cheeses. In the old-fashioned way, 27 kilos, 60-pound wheels that we produce from our own milk, you know, grazed grass, um, stored for, you know, our mature cheese we'll sell at about 15 months old, you know, with its own delicate ecosystem on for that it takes on a flavor it takes on from the rind with special starters and so you know and very handmade you know we make about 200 tons of cheese a year that that volume's a tiny 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 weeny part of the cheese ecosystem and we have about 14 different cheeses mainly different ages of cheddar we smoke some. We make a goat's, a hard goat's cheese, make it like a cheddar. We make a Devonshire red and a double Devonshire. We we add a little a little bit of elderflower to the curd of some of our cheese, making a lovely summer cheese. We do a mixed milk cheese uh, called Lady Prue, my mother's name. And we also have whey butter and goat's butter. So it's very much the products that we produce from the milk that comes from the farm, we do buy the goat's milk in, but that's from farmers close by. We can cut on farm. Not so many people want 27 kilo wheels these days. Uh, And we can cut down to, tend to cut down to about 150 grams would be our smallest piece. And it seems mainly to I was surprised. I thought people might go for bigger bits of cheese online, but actually people are still going for the 150 gram, you know, six ounce pieces. This online is developing. 
you know, we had the other day, we had somebody buy a mother buy her, her when she comes down to see her daughter at university. She normally brings her some cheese. So she bought her one of each of every one of our products. And I guess they're, they're going to share them online. I mean, it's just amazing. She, so she, she did that online. From our cheese box, which is our retail outlet on the farm, we're also selling other people's cheeses, local cheeses that we think are great, local chutneys, local biscuits, you know, things that go immediately with cheese. As things have developed and we're seeing more online purchasing, many companies seem to have done a variety of things with their postage or their shipping, anywhere from free all the way through to extremely high prices. How have you managed that aspect of it? Certainly when we took postage off for NHS workers and postage off above £40, more people are going for that. When you look at where people jump off the buying journey on our website certainly it was when they came to the postage that you could see people going "Mm -mm, not not so much so you know the amazon model is very powerful isn't it so we need to to be doing what people expect and and i suppose with a, a lot of what's happened recently a lot of it is i don't say trial and error but you sort of have to adjust as you go along because much of this is new for everybody yeah, that, and that's what's extraordinary. So when I sent out this open letter, we've had some people have come to us. I mean, actually, it's a plea. It's a call to to buy from everybody in our ecology. But we've had some people come and buy from us. And I mean, some of the things that we're doing, we're doing a, a cook-along with a member of our staff, an account manager, but who, who also is a fantastic chef. We've uh, emailed out on Eventbrite. We've sent out on Eventbrite the ingredients. So I'm going to be making my twice-cooked souffles with Patrick, as indeed uh, I think last time I looked this morning, it was 55 people who had registered to cook along, you know, cook along a recipe with him using our cheese. There's an organization that we've created called Academy of Cheese, which I've created with a number of other people in the UK cheese industry. And we are going to be doing a big cheese weekend in the uh, May bank holiday, uh, 8th, 9th and 10th of May, which is going to be half hour spots, you know, uh, live streaming of cooking and pairing and what it's like on the farm. All of that stuff. So, you know, we don't know what works, but it feels to me that, you know, this the problem about the online li- life is it's a bit arid, isn't it? You're looking at the screen and there's these sort of bald pictures of products. And people, I think people are yearning for that connection. And if we can give people that sense of connection, that there's a, that there's a human being on the other end and preferably a human being that you can interact with, because that's getting to be really quite clever with things like Instagram Live, you know, or maybe even chatting like you can with, uh, you know, with Zoom or something. I think it's really interesting that, that this pandemic has come along at the time when the, we can explore all this technology and find out how we can make it work for people. It certainly seems that there are opportunities here as well as challenges. Well, you know, if you just sat with the challenges, that would be a very boring place to be. We have to find the opportunities. And I don't want to be la-la land about it. I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it. But there are opportunities. And, you know, 
all of us can make a difference in in using these opportunities and making sure that we get this beautiful ecology of lovely food for that to, to thrive during and beyond this crisis. And now to another story on responses to coronavirus. Our next guest is David Yanez, founder and CEO of Andonix, a company working to help other companies on safety during the crisis. Many dairy companies are still running, trying to get their products into supermarkets, and there are clearly challenges for any business staying open in these tough times with social distancing and the like. David can tell us what his company is doing to help those companies stay in business and stay safe. I'm guessing with the crisis, you must be pretty busy right now. Yeah, that is correct. We are definitely working around the clock to help people get back to work get companies be open and stay open in different industries. But, uh, we need to jumpstart this economy and protect supply chains. Of course, economically speaking, but most importantly, we're concerned about supply chain and, and, and the food industry is definitely one of the supply chains that has to be protected, has to be uh, enabled, and especially because of the psychological factors of not seeing those shelves fully stocked it could create a lot more concern and, and with people fear and anxiety going up. Could you give me a little bit of background on the company, what you do there? Yeah, sure. So I have two companies. So one is obviously manufacturing at its best. Uh, we have about 2,000 people supplying parts and products to uh, automakers in U.S., Mexico, and Brazil. And, and that's why I'm so close to uh, the front line. And then I have a technology company, Andonix, and this is now the company that is helping uh, all these all these companies, including food industry, to go back to work safely or, or be open and stay open. So in essence, uh, Andonix uh, automates frontline work in labor-intensive companies. We enable remote guidance and support by connecting workers to the rest of the organization, especially in these labor-intensive industries, they are not connected. And then we create significant value, safety, quality, and productivity. Companies are able to quickly train workers uh, with adaptive e-learning and micro-learning, automating workflows with step-by-step guidance, and capturing a wealth of data that was hitting our luck in binders. Uh, with, with machine learning, we can unlock such data, we can predict prescribed value. And right now, uh, during this pandemic, we're helping companies with employee monitoring, site entry, and visitor compliance through contact tracing and uh, other technologies uh, to mitigate the impact of labor shortages and increased rotation. And we provide a lifeline of labor to labor-intensive companies. Things have changed drastically over the past few months. Is this something that will will there be a new normal after this, or will it just be back to what it was before? What kind of things are we looking to to that might hang over from what we're experiencing now that we will continue to do after all this is over? Yeah, I, I don't think that we're going back to business as usual. I think the new normal is is here to stay. Um, just like 9-11 shaped the travel industry, I think this pandemic is going to shape 
our uh, work and social habits, especially for large supply chains like the food industry and, and any other supply chain. Uh, the business continuity playbooks were impacted. Pretty much everything in those books that has been planning for for any kind of interruptions didn't consider a pandemic. So being able to adapt quickly, but staying resilient and, and, and staying protected for the next pandemic that could happen in one, five, ten, we don't know. Uh, it's going to be now definitely one of the playbook needs for any large supply chains. And, and of course, the challenge here is how quickly we can deploy these at scale and how quickly we can help with small and medium businesses because those are the ones that are exposed the most. I see large enterprise companies procuring their own systems and measures, but the small and medium companies uh, are really struggling because this means additional costs. This means additional management. And quite honestly, there is no playbook, right? So getting them there quickly is one of our missions to get these in a sustainable and viable way. Definitely. It's, as you said, there's no playbook. It's, it's very much companies are having to adapt very quickly, but the only problem is they're not exactly sure what they need to do. Correct. Correct. So, and, and so that's where, you know, we basically borrow from the lean manufacturing playbook. The best practices for quality containment are now applicable to health containment. And just to draw a parallel here is, being in manufacturing industries, uh, quality containment pretty much means that if there is a defective component, how do you make sure the next one is perfect and, and doing these, uh, these at scale at, uh, and large capacity? Health containment is what we need at company level to make sure that we prevent outbreaks. So when we go back to work, or even if we're staying open, like, like essential industries like dairy, we can make sure that uh, people are protected people are safe, and we don't have any more outbreaks. I think the, the three pillars of these health containment are based on detection, they're based on prevention, and they're based on monitoring and traceability. Those are the fundamental uh, aspects of creating effective containment for anything. The challenges we have with these is that A, uh, detection is not perfect because we don't have test kits. And, and without a good way to say who has it and who doesn't have it, uh, we have to make sure that we assume everyone has it and then monitoring symptoms. The second thing with prevention is, and what we noticed with dairy industry and, and food processors, they were better prepared than any other industries because pathogens and food doesn't mix. And so they were already kind of like sanitized from the inside to make sure that they were protecting workers and, and food sources uh, by eliminating pathogens. But what happens before and after that sanitary containment, it's what it's, it's bringing companies to trouble. Like, like it's Midfield, they had a major outbreak and they shut down the largest manufacturing pork processing plant in, in, in the state because it was this, this spread happened before and after, not during the, 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 these challenging uh, conditions, right? And then the third thing is, obviously, with monitoring, um, being sure that you have clear containment policies for physical distancing, 
it's very challenging when you have break areas, cafeterias, bathrooms, and, and people don't know when to go, where to go, at what time, or if it's crowded or not. And then obviously making sure that you have an effective traceability way that if you detect an outbreak, you can immediately confine that outbreak to, to, the, to the team members that were exposed. And because we don't have that choice, we're shutting down the whole plan 14 days to say we got to reset again and start all over. So those are basically some of the elements that we're seeing here. Um, and, and, the, and the key is to implement these fast at a scale and a cost-effective way because the supply chain, and when we talk about, again, on the dairy industry, we're talking about a lot of family-owned companies, owner-operated companies, small and medium. And, and so it's, it's really uh, imperative that we do this quickly and we equip them with the playbook and the tools to do a good job. Obviously, you were talking about tools. How much of that is, um, is digital? How, how much are we talking about the increase in online information and digital information being important here? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, I think that's the key because if we can provide them with a digital playbook and we can provide them with the tools to implement these, uh, I think that's where we have a much better outcome or probability of a much better outcome. So in essence, I think that the first thing is being able to implement what happens before and after. And I think that if we, if we give them an opportunity, and this is what we're doing right now for some of these food processing industries um, and, and dairy as well, where we have right now a monitor, a health monitor at the gate, right? And, and basically they have a temperature gauge. Uh, Tyson Foods was able to put together cameras, but again, that's $5,000, $20,000 a pop. It's small, medium companies don't have that type of money. So enabling them with $20 infrared thermometer so they can do these at a distance and with certain degree of effectiveness. B, a self-wellness form, which it's a no-no to use pens and papers. So digitizing this process, think about when you're boarding a plane, you have a, a QR code, which is your boarding pass, and you don't have to touch anything, right? So basically that's the first uh, element of the solution where you can take your personal phone and basically with this phone, you have the ability to create uh, or fill this self-wellness assessment to say, yeah, I have not been traveling anywhere outside of this circle. I haven't been internationally anywhere. And then checking your temperature and then just scanning this QR quickly. That's, that's what we're doing right now, eliminating that pain point, saving them time and also avoiding social, uh, avoiding uh, uh, physical proximity, enabling the, the physical distancing. So that's the first element when they get into, into the work. So, uh, of course, for dairy industry, most companies we know, they don't, they don't bring their phones inside. They put them at lockers for sanitary reasons. And that's the other, the other solution that we're offering. We're talking about working from home being the new norm, but really in the dairy industry, that's not an option. So it, it kind of, it, you've got to f figure out as quickly as you can other ways to be able to achieve the same kind of safety. Absolutely, absolutely, because we call it remote remote work from from work. 
we have all these amazing tools that are remote work from home and everybody's coming up with playbooks, how to become efficient and effective. Well, you don't have a choice. If you're an essential worker, you don't have a choice to work from home. I mean, that's how we can keep the lights on, the internet running and the food on our table. So I think that the, the other components, once we provide them with the digital playbook, you know, very simple, just click, download and go app. Um, it's very simple. It's kind of like a social media, like doing Facebook, doing Instagram. We don't, we don't want people to be trained on how to use these. It's kind of like just get your boarding pass, get the monitoring, get best practices. Here is, here is a nice way to organize your work area, color code it so you can stagger people, blue go goes here, yellow goes there, and these are the times, so you avoid crowds. So simple systems that can be deployed that way are key. The other, the other component is the communication factor, right? So what we are doing with our communication platform is, again, like social media, think about WhatsApp, think about Messenger. We are enabling these workers, whether you're a 20, uh, 20 team members, family-owned company, or you're a 2,000 team member, connecting them to each other. There is crowd wisdom, there is tribal knowledge. And if you can make sure that you're transferring that knowledge quickly among team members, A, you can, you can, you can basically have flexibility to cover operations. Number two, you, you have remote guidance and support among team members. And ultimately, um, what we see is that you have uh, technicians that are essential to these companies for their equipment that are not able to travel through state lines or even if you have equipment from overseas. So it's difficult to, to give them the, the guidance to troubleshoot equipment. So by being able to connect them with, call it tele-maintenance, we are enabling companies to get access to more resources and break those space and time constraints. So that's the other thing that is fundamental to, to help them. Uh, and the other thing that we're doing, I mean, if you're a small company, you're, I mean, you're probably in trouble trying to find additional PPE. Of course, you know, if you were in, in, in dairy or food processing before, you had a lot of PPE. But we're seeing that healthcare is taking priority and everybody is supplying healthcare. Governments are centralizing efforts to have uh, a good initiative to keep hospitals equipped. And that's great, but we're forgetting about the small guys that were relying on, on the Grangers to get their PPE, right? And also being able to sustain a supply chain that can give them equipment uh, in a predictable way with fair pricing is important. And that's the other thing we're enabling through our platform. Uh, we're, we're talking to a lot of large sources of equipment and, and we're making sure that this equipment is available because without that, then they're just going to get back in trouble, right? Telehealth is the other thing we're equipping uh, as well, uh, making sure that especially if you're in a rural area or remote locations, you have doctors, available like via Zoom so they can diagnose, follow up and release workers to go back to work, uh, you know, uh, with telehealth. So these are some of the things that we are doing to, to equip them with the tools and the technology that can help them stay viable and, and, and be viable for a longer, uh, longer time. 
I guess for for your company, it's sort of a, a double edged thing because you're working very hard to try and help the companies, but also you have to be staying ahead of what's going on so that you can offer them the advice in the first place. True, true, and that's and that's exactly right. Being close to the front line is key. Understanding their challenges is key. Talking to union officials is key. Getting all the stakeholders involved is key. And, and that's where we have these benefits. Uh, a, we are definitely on, uh, right at the front lines. We're talking to all these uh, key stakeholders. And, and we, we have been very fortunate to have the network to very quickly you know, pick up the phone and call someone that has that, right? That, that type of experience and capability. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we're helping a lot of industries put together those playbooks. Um, we're looking at best practices from Italy uh, for, for uh, dairy industry because they, they, they got the first challenge um, before the U.S. or, or uh, Mexico or Canada. And then, you know, for other sectors, China has been a good example of, of how to do it. But, but obviously, China has challenges because there is a lot more control. And our, our society and, our, and our, our systems are not about command and control. They're all about freedom, right? So there is another component there that makes it challenging. And as far as getting in touch with you, uh, how, do they, how do companies do that if they are looking for help? We're getting ready to launch U.S., Mexico, and Canada on May 1st. Right now, we're working with about 30 different uh, companies, small, medium, and large testing the uh, what we it, it's our product is safely that's basically how it's called for uh, to create health containment at companies or, or workspaces so we have a limited beta going on right now where we're verifying all the algorithms where for example the contact tracing it's optional for companies and people because we want again we're not all about command and control we're not about empowering companies to control people we're about empowering workers to feel safe to, to reduce the anxiety that they know they're working at a safely workspace and that their companies care about that. That's the other factor, making sure people feel safe to go back to work is important. So what we're doing right now is collecting all that data, perfecting a lot of algorithms. It's, it's a close uh, beta pro uh, program right now. We have been doing that these for now three weeks, four weeks. And, and we are launching on May 1st uh, with Labor Day. Uh, and that's when basically um, we're going to just have a link on our website. We're going to just empower companies to click download and download and go. We're going to be uh, right now. Our website has all the resources for the playbook. It has a checklist sur sur surveys that you can you can fill yourself. It has basically everything you need to be open and stay open. And then we're going to add on May 1st that link to say, okay, you, you got the, uh, the playbook now, but here is the technology for you to do it. And we're offering this for free. We're not going to charge uh, any company to get this, this piece of technology. We have another product, which is a smart workstation. If you want to go deeper and, and, and you want to create a lot more, I would say digitize your manuals and, and obviously make sure that you take it to the next level. And it goes beyond safety. It goes also into productivity and, 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 and quality. But for, for health and wellness, we feel it's wrong to charge companies. We, we, we definitely want to help. Uh, we want to make an impact. And, and quite honestly, um, I think that you know, customers and employees are going to remember their companies 
how they were treated during these times. And that will that will go with you for next 10 years. Um, and, and we want to be one of those companies that was part of the solution. Uh, we're not doing this for profit right now. Uh, and we're not collecting anything or charging anyone for to use safely, especially SMBs. We want to make this available permanently. That's our goal. If we can enable people to go back to work safely, we can help jumpstarting these sectors in these intricate economies of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. We'll leave another day to fight. And, and when companies are ready to say, I'm ready for continuous improvement, hey, we're ready for you whenever you are. But right now, let's just go back to work safely. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INCL FC Stone. The main topic of discussion on a day-to-day basis um, in the European uh, futures market, dairy futures market, has been Corona and uh, the effects that that's having on on demand uh, primarily. Also, we're in uh, prime milk flush season at the moment, where milk supply uh, seems to be striking pretty well apart from uh, situations where you may have volume reduction schemes in place. Um, May-June butter down around €50 from uh, 27.70 level to the 27.20 level. Uh, Remains flat on quarter three around the 28.45, 28.50 level all week. And quarter four uh, was up around uh, €50 to the 29.50 level. The butter market has been pretty much... Uh, stagnant all week. Uh, the skim milk powder market has been a little bit more active where we've seen prices drop a little bit uh, around 20 to 30 uh, euros a ton. Uh, we've seen uh, quarter two move down from around uh, 1900 level to the 1880 level. Quarter three is down from 1950 to around 1930. Quarter four down around 30 euros from uh, 2020 to 1990 level. Way has remained relatively constant uh, around the 710, 720 level. Thanks, Liam. We'll catch up with you again next week in our last show of April. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another week. Seven more days of lockdown crossed off the calendar. And I hope you enjoyed what was a pretty varied show and that you'll listen again next time when we will feature, among others, interviews with Friend of the Earth about sustainability and plastic recycling enzymes with French company Carbios. We do have interviews already done, so that's a big help. And before I forget, and in case you cared, the answers to the quiz at the beginning about 79 were Super Tramp, Pittsburgh and Gold. Not sure what I'll do with the number 80 next week, if anything, as the show becomes an octogenarian. And so, during these trying times, please stay safe, take good care of yourself and others, and, as always, thanks for listening. (laughs) 